Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Elevation Podcast Series, presented by the Colorado PGA. This week, we will be elevating our knowledge of mentorship. My name is Holly Champion, and I'm the Education Director for the Colorado PGA. Our first guest this week is Scott Irwin, PGA professional and owner representative at the Maroon Creek Club in Aspen, Colorado. Scott began his career by playing golf at the professional level while traveling to 37 different countries in the process. Once he began his career as a PGA professional, Scott worked in six different sections of the PGA before finding his way to Aspen and the Maroon Creek Club. Scott became a PGA member in 1978 and has enjoyed being a mentor to many throughout his career. He has provided valued guidance to head professionals, superintendents, general managers, directors of golf, and senior vice presidents along the way. Scott has received many awards in his career, the most recent being the 2020 Colorado PGA Bill Strasbaugh Award. Our second guest this week is PGA Life member Clayton Cole. Clayton began as an assistant golf professional in 1970 at Cherry Hills Country Club after a brief stint on the PGA Tour. He was named the head professional at Dallas Country Club in 1974, where he remained for 12 years. He then moved to Austin in 1986 to become director of golf and vice president of operations at the Lakeway Company before returning to Cherry Hills in 1991 as the head golf professional. Clayton is highly regarded for his mentoring of fellow PGA professionals. He has trained and mentored 11 assistants who have gone on to become head golf professionals of some of the top 100 clubs in the country. In 2009, Clayton became the first member of the Colorado PGA to receive the National Bill Strasbaugh Award, which is given by the PGA of America for exemplary mentoring. Please enjoy this episode of the Elevation Podcast. Mr. Scott Irwin, Mr. Clayton Cole, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the Elevation Podcast centered around mentorship. Um, Both of you have been incredible mentors for countless individuals in and around the golf and hospitality industry, so going to have a conversation around that. Um, Scott, we'll start with you. Just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background. Well, the cliff note version is... uh I started out playing golf in 37 countries, proving without a doubt I couldn't make a living playing golf anywhere in the world. So after a a big bite of humility, I started the club business at the Los Angeles Country Club in the early 70s. And from there, I went on to various jobs. I've worked in six different sections, New York, South Carolina, Texas, Oklahoma, California, and Colorado. And uh, along the way, I've met some really incredible golf professionals. And three, that I want to, I wouldn't call them mentors necessarily, but people I've looked up to and I've followed along the way. On the East Coast, it was Bob Ford at Oakmont and, and now Seminole. The West Coast is Eddie Marins. In the central part of the United States, it's Clayton Cole. These fellows are all older than me and smarter than me, and I've learned a lot through the years. My career has gone from a head professional to director of golf to general manager, chief operating officer to executive vice president, uh, to now owner representative for a club in Aspen, Colorado called the Maroon Creek Club, which I'm thrilled to still be associated with at age 71. Awesome. Sounds like a lot of experience, and I would love to have your travel experience. That that many countries sounds amazing. Um, Clayton, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background. Okay, well, I started off 
around the golf business. My dad was a golf professional, PGA golf professional. And so I was always around golf. I went to school, our high school golf team, and then my college golf team. I went to school at the University of Houston. And when I got out, I decided I'd try to get into the business world, and that didn't seem to fit too well. I worked uh, five or six hours a day, maybe, and I thought I worked 12. I switched over into the golf business and worked 12 and thought I worked five or six, so I stuck with it ever since. And my uh, dad was uh, very instrumental in uh, the way he handled himself through all of that, and I think he wanted me to be a golf professional, but he didn't really come out and say that. So after that, I uh, was fortunate enough tried to play the tour. I qualified and tried to play the tour. I say tried because I lasted eight months in 1969 and then got into as an assistant professional at Cherry Hills in Denver. And I worked for Warren Smith and I was there four years and then became the head pro at Dallas Country Club. And then I went to Lakeway. That was 12 years. And then I went to Lakeway for five years running three courses for a gentleman that uh, owned that real estate project. Warren Smith retired, and then I came back and was a head pro at Cherry Hills. And I was there 17 years before I retired. I had a fun playing career in the sectional levels, and uh, but my main objective, was, of course, was the job and trying to have excellence in the job. Excellent. Yes. I think I, I love your story. Um, I know I've heard you in our fireside chats before about your time in Texas and, and working with Warren. And I think that's really neat to hear about your experience down there as well. Um, so kind of rolling right into my next question, you know, we're talking about mentorship, Scott, Clayton, you both, um, listed a couple of people that were really impactful in your careers. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that. Um, Clayton, we'll just go right back with you. Who were some of your most impactful mentors throughout your career and why? Well, I'll start off with my father, uh, Winnie Cole. I called him W.E. He was a great golf professional. He probably presented to me honesty and quality and first class. He had a cute little story. He said, it doesn't cost any more to go first class. You just can't stay as long. And so I kind of remembered that. <laughs> I kind of remembered that one. So rather than going for a week, maybe I'll go for three days, you know, that type of thing. And uh, he, he just set the right tone for me uh, as far as the way I handled myself, watching him, the way he handled himself. And then I was so fortunate to work for Warren Smith. And I think the, one of the main things I got from Warren Smith was discipline. Um, and it's so interesting. And where it really came to focus was when I became the head pro at Cherry, uh, Dallas Country Club. And a gentleman told me in the parking lot there at Dallas Country Club, Clayton, most of what you accomplish in life will be through discipline. And I, it just registered all of a sudden that that was what was so impactful that Warren Smith taught because he was such a disciplined person. He ran a quality operation, and that was it. Got a lot of delegation given to me, and I was able to handle those chores, and that's what made me able to become a head professional. So here's a nice quote that Warren Smith uh, told us when we worked at Cherry Hills. Clayton, we like all of our members 
We might like some better than others, but make sure you like them all. And so I carried that with me, and that really was helpful at Dallas Country Club and for the rest of my career. That's a great quote. I, you know, you I've been at a couple different private clubs throughout my uh, much younger career at this point, but um, you know, you always bond with a certain number of members and and have your favorites, but you can't not favorite everybody at the same time. To kind of extend on that, uh, Dallas Country Club, this one guy was really getting under my skin. I mean, I just said, you know, I've got to figure out. I remembered what Warren said, and I said, I've got to figure out how to like this guy. Well, he was a high handicapper. He had the funniest swing, especially on his practice swing. Kept his head down, swirled the club around at the finish, even more exaggerated than Arnold Palmer. And I said, that's what it is. I'm going to have a big smile on my face every time I see that guy because he has got the funniest swing in the club. And so that's how I made myself like that guy. That's fantastic. I love it. Smiling near someone as opposed to laughing at them, I guess. That's probably pretty good. (laughs) I like it. Well, Scott, um, can you elaborate a little bit? I know you mentioned Bob Ford, uh, Clayton Cole, and uh, one of your mentors in California. Just who were they? Expand a little bit on what you learned from them. And I have four mentors in my life that have been specific, that have been specific to me as a mentor. Uh, first would be Bill Kender from the Los Angeles Country Club. When I was there in the 70s, he felt that I had promise as far as being a key leader in country club business. And Bill Kinder was the executive vice president of McKinsey and Company. That's the group people hire from American Airlines or General Motors, their company's having trouble. They call McKinsey and Company, they're brilliant business guys. So he taught me how to look at a country club as a business and, and not just a culture. The second would be, uh, and, and I wanna say something, Mr. Kinder taught me how to write a business plan. And uh, I've had I've been in five national searches in five different states, conducted by five different headhunters, and starting out with 100, 150 people in the search, and I won all five. And I I can assure you, I wasn't the best candidate in any one of those searches, but I was probably the best prepared. And Bill Kinder showed me how to write a business plan, then he showed me how to prepare for it, so that. Uh, when I was sitting down with the board of directors and the president, I was relaxed and composed and could deliver the message. My second would be Byron Nelson. Byron Nelson helped me with my golf swing and my golf game. But most importantly, he impressed upon me when I was at the Lost Community Sports Club. He said, Scott, it's more important to be respected and trusted by the membership than it is to be popular. And I think that has helped me many times in the country club business. The third would be Jack Turpin. Jack Turpin was the chairman of the board of Dallas Theological Seminary for 12 years. He also was a very successful businessman in Dallas. He sold one of his companies for $500 million. He taught me how to use scripture uh, in my everyday life and even in running a club. Now, I may not quote a scripture, but I may say, you know, I can tell you a cute story if you want a story a little bit about that but and, get, and, and give a story. Uh, and the fourth would be Andy Heck, who's one of the owners of the Maroon Creek Club now. He's an attorney, and you wouldn't think you would learn grace from an attorney, but he's just a wonderful, nice man. He has taught me grace in some difficult circumstances I've been involved with here since 1999. And uh, 
his appreciation for excellence has allowed me to do a lot of things here that I've never been able to do at any other club. Do you want the story of of uh, how you can use scripture without using scripture? Yeah, for sure. When I first arrived at the Maroon Creek Club in 1999, I was standing at the front desk or walking up to the front desk, and I observed a receptionist who I didn't know well at the time. I've only been here a few weeks. A UPS man walked in the front door, and he was lost. He was looking for an address that was in our neighborhood. She didn't stop what she was doing to make eye contact. She didn't face him. She didn't help him at all. And he left very uh, unappreciated, I'm sure. Anyway, the club manager was standing with me, so I asked him to step in for her, and I took her in the dining room. I said, uh, uh, I asked her, I said, uh, what is your favorite restaurant in Aspen? And she said, well, that'd be a little now. I said, what do you like about it? Well, the food's good, the service is excellent, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, do you share that opinion with other people? And she said, well, of course I do. I said, what do you think the UPS opinion, man's opinion is of the Maroon Creek Club? You were very curt. Well, she, she argued with me. She said, well, he's not a member. I said, I don't care if it's a guest or a stranger or a member who it is. If somebody walks in that front door, you stop what you're doing, you face them, you smile, and you do your best to help them. And when they leave, you offer them a bottle of water or a cup of coffee. And then after that, I said, there's a saying that we're going to have as a mission statement at the Marine Creek Club. It goes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of regard one another is more important than himself. Do not really look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I don't go beyond that because the next part of it is as Jesus Christ did in his life. And I try to avoid that part. I don't quote the scripture location. I just said the saying. And that did become our mission statement. And when once the staff bought into that, I never had to worry about how the members were treated. If they treat each other like that and strangers like that, we'll never have to worry about how they treat a member. That's a great story. I love that. I One of my um, clubs I worked at was uh, the Legends of Indiana in just south of Indianapolis. I worked for Ted Bishop for a summer. It was my first internship, really one of my first jobs. And he kind of had the same mentality. It was everybody who walks in the door, you know, it was a semi-private atmosphere, had um, 27 holes and 18 hole par three. It was a big facility. And uh, that, it didn't matter if it was, you know, a six-year-old kid out to use the par three, if it was the delivery guy, if it was one of the the more regular customers on the big course, stuff like that. Um, You know, really, really great lesson of treat everybody like they're your highest paid, highest you know, oldest member, most respected person, things like that. So really great story. I love that. When we're looking at those mentors that both of you listed, um, what, I guess, attracted you to them in the first place? You know, was it their success? Was it their attitude? Um, Was it more of a mutual um, respect for one another? Things like that. Just how did you identify those people and pick them out of a crowd, so to speak. Uh, Scott, we'll start with you. Well, knowledge, integrity, and character would be the top three, but the willingness to help and to serve others unselfishly, to me, was probably the most important. Clayton, how about you? Well, I was kind of fortunate that the two mentors I had most impact on me was my father, so that was an easy one. I was always around him. And uh, 
he gave me the right model, you might say, for honesty and quality and try to do things first class. And that was just fortunate for me that he was such a role model for me. And then Warren Smith, uh, working four years at Cherry Hills. I mean, it was such a great membership. It still is a great membership at the club. And, and uh, But he just made sure that you had a lot to do and could grow. And um, that required discipline for you to get it all done because it was a busy place during the season. And so those two were the ones that had the biggest, you know, impact on me because of what I had mentioned prior, like all the members. Well, you can't go wrong with that one. Definitely. Absolutely. I Helping you grow, let's dive into that one a little bit. How did he help you grow? What did he identify that really stood out to you in terms of, was it giving you more responsibility? Was it moving you around different places of the operation? Can you expand on that? Yes. He definitely... Um, moved us around you might say you had to know every part of the operation and uh, he gave us a little freedom to come up with new ideas Um, like for example rather than just taking sales as a bulk number uh, breaking it down for number of units you sold and shirts and number of units you sold this was back in 1970 so we didn't have any software to do all of that so it was a matter of going through the tickets daily and, and getting the responsibility of doing the tickets, doing the responsibility of taking them to the accounting office. Those all uh, give you a full picture of what's going on in a golf operation and go, attending grounds meetings and attending gr- the golf meeting. So those are all the ways you grow. You watch people in those meetings and see how they handle themselves. And then you try to replicate the ones that you think are handling themselves the best. And be a good listener. Uh, listen, I always listen to people when uh, they're talking to more in a group just to see what I can learn from them. So I was around people that were good thinkers and uh, were very supportive of the golf staff. The, oh, I'm, this is one story, uh, Holly, that and two years after I'd been the head pro at Dallas Country Club, the guy that hired me, Bill Adams, said... Clayton, did I ever tell you why we actually hired you? We were really looking for a head pro, but you were assistant pro. But you can answer all the questions better than the head pros. And I said, well, Bill, I was really fortunate. I worked for a guy that gave us a lot of responsibility, so I knew how each part of the operation worked. And so that's what made a big, big difference. That's great. Yeah, being able to move around and get your hands get your hands into every part of the operation, I think is great. I had, again, one of my internships in college, I worked for Ron Dunham at Teton Pines in Wyoming, and he did the same thing. I spent a week with the merchandiser. I spent a week in the cart barn. I spent a week with junior camps. I spent, you know, weeks just around all parts of the golf operation and, and was really, really fortunate to learn a lot of that stuff because I had never really worked in a cart barn before that time. And that way I could tell you know, I all of a sudden had a much greater appreciation for things like washing clubs and washing the carts and keeping the batteries watered and all of those kind of things that I had just never been around before, which I thought was really cool. Well, um, you're right, Ali. Then my dad uh, is where I learned most of that, like washing clubs. I had to wash all the clubs during the summer 
most of the players played in the afternoon, and uh, so I couldn't quit until I had them all washed and racked. And and the golf carts were just coming out, so I learned about the golf carts at that particular time. So yeah, just being around the back end and picking up the range, those are all things you just learn over a period of time. I think a lot of the young people miss that kind of experience, Clayton, where you start out and you do things at the very bottom. When I started out at LA Country Club, my first job, and Clayton, Holly, you won't know this probably, but Clayton certainly will. My first job was, in those days, range balls were old cut up coals. They all had cuts in them. Nobody made a range ball in the early 70s. So I'd sit at this little, I call it a machine. It had two little pins that went in and out when you pushed the pedal down. You pushed the pedal down, the pin was out. You put your old cut up ball in the middle, let the pins go back together. Then you push another pedal and it spins. Then you take your paintbrush and you dip it in the red paint and you just touch it. So some stripes were one width and some are others. That was my first job. Oh, that's <laughs> fantastic. I really did. <laughs> yeah, you know, Scott, that's a good story because in the early 70s, we had two types of range balls at Cherry Hills. We had the blues and the reds. And the blues were the Titleist balls, and they were marked with a blue stripe, and we had to stripe them. So the guy that picked them out of the lakes would bring them to us, and we'd put them in this little holder and have a paintbrush and hold it there and twist it around, and there was the blue stripe. Do the same thing for another ball that wasn't so good. That was a red stripe. Young, young Two different prices. Maroon Creek Two Club. different prices. Yeah. Here at the Maroon Creek Club, I've only seen pro ones as range balls. So when I tell them that story, they think I'm lying. They don't, they don't believe what we used to practice with. Oh, that's oh. hilarious. I, I, I have gotten an education today. I honestly didn't know that that machine existed. That's how you striped <laughs> golf balls in the 1970s. I love it. Oh, man. It was old when I got to it. So it was probably from the 50s and 60s, and it was just left over there. Well, that's, that's a great point that both of you make too, is being able to start out at those very basic levels, you know, do it by hand before you get into an automated system with, I see it a lot now with um, things like business reports and merchandising and things like that. Um, my first couple of experiences with merchandise is we had to hand count items. There was no, oh, just go around and scan all the barcodes and the computer will automatically do it. It was, here's your spreadsheet that was run out of, you know, the the POS, but there was no hand scanner. It took a lot of hours to go through it. And so learning that process from there and then being able to graduate into, you know, more of a digital process that took up less time, it makes you appreciate the process, but also the knowledge that goes into that. I think, you know, there's different experiences in all aspects of the business that really, if you learn from that basic level and get all of the steps um, in your brain before you move up and move on really helps you as you get further and further in your career. So both of you spoke to that really well. Um, next question I had, um, you know, obviously you're both have had a very successful career and have gone a lot of different places, done a lot of really neat things and are now mentors to others. Um, if someone is maybe my age or younger, I'm 30, I'm about, you know, eight to 10 years into a career, um, 
I have a couple of people that have made impacts, but I don't have a regular mentor at this point. Why is it important for someone at my stage of my career to find one, seek one? You know, what what's that really going to do in the long run? Um, Scott, we'll start with you. Well, we all need mentors, everyone. And uh, depending on what your needs are at the time, I, I mentor head pros, general managers, executive vice presidents, and so on. It depends on where the individual is at their time. Uh, if I was a young golf pro and I was about to compete for the head pro job of a country club or, or golf facility, I'd pick up the phone and call Clayton Cole. No one knows golf operations better than he does. I mean, he has a history in Texas and in Colorado of running the best golf operations. So uh, I would do that. Where, where I typically try to help folks is, is the interviewing process. I've had a lot of success in going through the final interviews, and it's, a, it's an art and a skill to sit down in front of 12 board of directors for a half a day or a day and answer questions for four or five hours. And I try to work on that aspect of the individual's presentation. Definitely great points. Clayton, what do you think? Well, I agree with Scott that we all need mentors. We all use them uh, to some extent, whether we know it or not. And uh, I have heard Scott tell a story about interviewing for those some of the couple of those jobs he talks about today. And he has very excellent interview skills. And that's something that I probably don't have near as well as Scott, but he has and spades interview skills. And you can tell by the results of his, you know, success. And I'd agree with him that we all need mentors uh, day to day in different areas. Um, I think as far as the, we've talked about more of the couple I had in the golf business, but I had others that were very good friends like Roy Coffey in Dallas, Texas, who's one of my real close friends. And if I had anything that was a real difficult life decision i would always call and get a little mentoring and his thinking on that um, you find people that you really trust and you can go to them and ask them to give you some ideas you have to make your own decision but at least they can expand your horizon of thinking so that you can make a better decision clayton and i both made our share of mistakes but we've been doing this for 50 plus years so uh, it's it's a benefit to a 30-year-old, 25-year-old, 35, 40-year-old to talk to someone like us who has been down that path and already maybe made a few mistakes in the areas that they have concerns about. Uh, you know, Holly, I think uh, also uh, having a job uh, person match is so important, whether that person matches the job. I've had some past assistants and also some other assistants that say, well, do you think I ought to apply for that job? Well, it depends on how your skills are, what your passion is. Um, you don't want to put somebody in a job where they're going to fail. That's the worst thing you can do. So you have to make sure that they're a good fit for what they're trying to accomplish. And if they're not, you can maybe explain some reasons why. Maybe it needs training or maybe it, the lack of passion is there. And you have to tell them, don't get into something for a lifetime that you don't have a passion for because Scott probably feels the same way I do. When you go to work every day and you have a passion for it, 
it doesn't feel like you're working every day. And that's what's been so great about my career. And everyone that loves the golf business probably feels pretty much similar to that. Scott, do you want to comment on any of that? I'll tell you a cute story. When I was, uh, when I came off the African, Asian, European tour, uh, I went to interview for a job at LA Country Club. They didn't have a job and it was very persistent. And finally, they set up a round of golf off property with the president, vice president, and the Greens chairman. I played with them, spent the day with them. They brought me back in a day or two later. I met with the general manager. He said, we want to hire you. And obviously, I was extraordinarily excited because like Clayton, I was very passionate about this opportunity. And like Dallas Country Club, if you can work for LA Country Club, it opens a lot of doors. And it puts you in front of a lot of really talented people. So as the interview is winding down, I got up and said, thank you, and shook his hand and started to walk out. And he said, don't you want to know how much money you're going to make? I said, no, sir, I'm just thrilled to have the job. <laughs> you wouldn't get that from the young people today. I mean, I mean and I, when I was there, I'd just come off the tour, so I was primarily, primarily teaching more than anything else. And uh, they gave me X number of dollars for 90 days until I could build my book of, of students. And then after that, Scott, you, he said, you've got to be, you eat what you kill. You only get what you, what you, what you teach. And I said, that's fine. After 90 days was up, they tripled my salary and gave me hundred percent of my lessons. So I, I was very happy there. What an opportunity. Well, well, yeah. Well earned. Wow. That's, that sounds like an amazing experience. And I definitely have heard of obviously both LA country club and Dallas, um, being just incredible places to work. So that's really neat that both of you have both of those covered. Um, switching One thing gears. I want to add, if you yeah. don't mind, mm-hmm. uh, and Clayton and I are both the benefactors of this. When I'm mentoring people, I try to explain to them. I mean, I go through the process of helping them with what are their physical issues they might have and what they're trying to learn. But I also encourage them to find the very best job they can find, the very best club, regardless of the title, and learn from the head pro that's there or from the general manager, director of golf that's there. Because where you perform has almost, if not more to do than how you perform. If you work at XYZ club that no one's ever heard of and you're outstanding, not many people get to see it. It's hard to move up. Clayton's been at Dallas Country Club and in Austin and in, at Cherry Hills. Every, he's under the spotlight every day of his life. It makes a big advantage if you can get those, even if you start at the bottom, a job at a better club. Well, and also, Holly, to expand on Scott's comments, the standards at a club like that are a lot higher. The membership demands more, and therefore you rise to the occasion. And that's what's so good about them. When I, when I tell young folks about their, they want to write their cover letter with their resume and they're putting all that together. And they, they, they I said, always have them send me a copy. And then I go through and write it a lot. And if I see them talking about themselves too much, I stop it. I say, you know what? You, if you're, if you just say, I'm the head pro at Cherry Hills Country Club, Blah, 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 blah. You don't have to say anything else about yourself because you wouldn't got there if those 12 people on the board of directors didn't think you were outstanding. And you wouldn't stay there if you didn't do an outstanding job. So you want to talk about the club and not about yourself. And in essence, you are talking about yourself because you wouldn't have got there if you weren't good. 
So I kind of want to dive into that a little bit because this this is something that I've read, um, you know, whether it's from our career consultant, Keith Soriano, or from people like both of you who have had, you know, incredible careers and experiences. Clayton, you talked about the, the importance of finding that operation or finding that mentor that allows you to get your hands into every piece of the operation to learn. And so that's somebody who, you know, lets you get those, you know, have those responsibilities, get that experience and things like that. And uh, Scott, you make a really good point of even if I work for, you know, an Oakmont or a tuxedo club or something like that, um, having that big name just sitting on your resume is great. But if you start out at one of the most basic levels and don't get those responsibilities, what's kind of, you know, which if, if there's a better one, if there's a better option, which is more important being maybe not at the top 100 club name, but you get all of the experience or is it better to be at that top 100 club and have that name for, and maybe not gain as much experience or as much in-depth operational knowledge? Well, I would say you need the experience. And uh, so you, I was in, I interviewed for two jobs when I came to Cherry Hills as an assistant pro, and they were both top clubs. And the reason I selected Cherry Hills because was because of Warren Smith, and I felt like he gave me better opportunity to grow, where the other one did not give me as much to grow. And that was a fortunate decision I made that I ended up coming to Cherry Hills. So I just believe you have to learn the business from bottom up and, and all phases of it, or otherwise you're not going to be able to delegate and hire effectively over a period of time. Let me say it differently than what I said a while ago. If I was a young assistant and I had a chance to make $30,000 working for XYZ Club or $21,000 working for Clayton Cullen Cherry Hills, I'd take the 21. And the reason is when you, if you do perform at a high level, Clayton can help you in that regard, but you're in front of 350 members that belong to clubs all over the nation that are watching you every day. I mean, you can't market that any any better way than to be in front of those kind of people. So sometimes I encourage people not to take certain jobs, head pro jobs, if it's going to put them in a dead end street and kill their career. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good perspective. I like that. I've, cause I've gotten both pieces of advice before I've gotten, you know, whether it was from someone at my, I was, I was a PGM grad. So someone at my school versus one of my older bosses that I'd had, you know, at a previous job. And it's some of them tell you, Oh, go for the big name club. That's the way that you want to go. Cause you get that network. Other one, other of my influencers would say, you know, no, go for the maybe smaller club or maybe not as big name, but you're going to learn every single part of the operation from this person. And I've made both choices in, in doing that. And I think they both have their own benefits and and pay off in their own ways. So, you know, let me add add something. I also um, mentor golf course superintendents. And when I'm working with them, uh, it's so important where they go and what job they have, because if you go to a club that's got $800,000 a year maintenance budget for the golf course, you can produce a certain product. If you go to a club that has $3 million for six months a year, you can produce a hell of a product. So when someone comes to interview you and they come on your property, and you just drive them around, you don't have to say much. They can look down at the ground and see all they need to see. And I'm sure that's true in working in a pro shop 
for Clayton and Cherry Hills as it would be for working for XYZ Club. And I'm not putting those clubs down. I'm just saying if you're one of those fortunate people that have the opportunity to work for Clayton Cole or Nettie Maringer or Bob Ford, you need to take a cut and pay to do that. Yeah, I would echo that, that uh, the experience is more important than the pay at the certain levels. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit, for both of you, obviously, you had mentors and now have become mentors for many different people. At what point is someone ready to start mentoring others or where where in your life, in your paradigm, in your career, does that shift happen to where you have mentors, but then you are able to start mentoring other people and become that resource? Um, Clayton, we'll start with you. Well, I think it just happens over time uh, as far as being a mentor. I mean, when you have people working and you're delegating things to them, uh, and then you're talking about their careers and trying to help them move forward in their career. I think you're being a mentor to them uh, as they go along. And the far more experience you have and the more exposure you've had to the industry and to people, you can be a better mentor as you have more experience, just like you can be a better worker at a place when you have more experience and understand the entire operation. So I think you just naturally work yourself into it and sometimes don't even realize how much of a mentor you are, but you really are. I know that uh, John Ogden has become a tremendous mentor at Cherry Hills with caddies uh, in the Evans Scholar Program because he just embraces and works really hard with the individuals to help them get out of maybe the situation they're in and think bigger and, and look toward making a career and whatever business they pick, but don't just tell them, well, you won't ever be anything. Just tell them how they, much they can be and paint a picture for them. And so he's done a wonderful job with that. And I know Scott and, and I both probably have had influence on a lot of assistants and we don't even know we have some influence, but that's the importance of taking care of yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, then it rubs off and you don't even know it. They might not know it for a while. Just like I didn't know all I got from Warren Smith actually until I quit working for Warren Smith. And I really was appreciative so much after that. Certainly. Scott, what do you think? Well, I think um, a mentor should will be more effective if they start once their career is on the downside. In other words, they're not focusing about their own career. They're ready to get 100% into other people. And Eddie, Eddie Ainsworth gave me an opportunity five or six years ago when I was on the board to serve as a mentor for the 800 golf professionals in, in Colorado. And I put together a video and sent it out to them and just how to do the final interview. Uh, I think it's very important that your mentor is not in competition with you. If you're a 45-year-old and you're trying to get the job at the golf club, you wouldn't go to a guy that's 50 that might be in the running and you don't know it. And that's the other thing. When I when I do mentor people, Eddie's asked me to teach mentoring for a PGA class or something, and I said it's really one-on-one. -on -one. Because I, when I meet with someone, I don't divulge anything we talk about, period. Because I may be, I may be mentoring two people that are going for the same job. So it's ethics are very important. Yes, they are. Very, very, very important. Um, 
So again, kind of some speaking from someone who may be in my age bracket or my um, part of my career, um, perpetually speaking, that's the listener of a podcast is right around, you know, my, my demographic. Um, so we may have quite a few listeners that are looking for a mentor. How should you approach another and ask them to be that mentor? Um, you know, do you just kind of fall into that? If you, you know, Clayton, when you went to work for Warren, did you actually have a formal conversation saying, you know, can you teach me this or can you mentor me in this? Or does it just kind of happen? You know, do you just kind of fall into those relationships? How how would someone like me approach someone like the two of you saying, can you be my mentor? Um, Clayton, we'll start with you. Okay, well, for Warren, you're exactly right on Warren Smith. I just kind of, it kind of fell into that of him being my mentor, uh, the way he handled himself on and off the job both. And uh, I thought he did a great job of that. So, but when you talk about approaching somebody, sometimes you can just ask them. I'll tell you what happened to me one time with one of the professionals here in town is uh, he was asking me a question or I was telling him something and he said, well, oh, I asked him, why did he call me on this question? He said, well, you're one of my mentors. Well, in his mind, I was already a mentor, but I didn't know that. And since then, you know, I've tried to take more of an interest in him because of that. Uh, and at one critical time, uh, not long ago, uh, I was able to be very helpful to him with uh, his thinking on a project when uh, I did, I wouldn't have probably taken that much interest had I, he not mentioned that to me, that he said, well, you are one of my mentors. I didn't even know it. That's really neat. Scott, what do you think? Well, I would say what I opened up with in the beginning is when you're looking for a mentor, it should be a specific knowledge. You know, what aspect are you working on in your life, in your career right now? Specific knowledge, someone with integrity and character. And uh, in my case, you know, when, when I had a golf question, Byron Nelson was about at the top of the list. Uh, if you wanted someone to share information about the golf swing or whatever, Bill Kinder, top of the list. I mean, I've been very, very fortunate to have wonderful mentors. And, you know, in this day and age, it's a little different, though. You can go online and Google running a pro shop and get a hundred answers from people like Clayton and I. Now, I don't know how, how good their information is, but at least you can weigh that down and read it and analyze it and come up with your own program from that. Clayton, I didn't have that. If we didn't find someone that could, you know, spoon feed us, there wasn't anything online to gather information. So things are changing a little bit now. And I think the PGA is probably doing a very good job in, in that regard. Well, another thing uh, for mentors, I had people that uh, were my mentors. I never told them that, maybe, but at clubs like where Scott was and where I was at Dallas Country Club and at Cherry Hills, sometimes you end up going on a private plane. Well, my job, in my mind, my job was to sit there and listen to how those people thought about certain projects or certain obstacles that they were talking business and business that I didn't know anything about, but still the concepts that they talked about and how they approached it meant a lot to me over a period of time. You pick up a little bit on each trip maybe, and I had several trips. And so 
I pick up a little bit of way of thinking and another way of thinking and uh, with the theme of always having honesty and, and respect. And that really was helpful to me a lot. And I would like to echo a Byron Nelson. I got to be very good friends with him at Dallas and played golf with him several times. And Scott hit it on the head. He is such a respected person. And people say, he sure seemed like a nice guy. And I said, well, he's at least that nice. And probably, not probably, he is more than that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I... He's, he's on kind of my short list of people who I'd love to, you know, you get that question, who's in your dream foursome? Um, he's, if I had to pick maybe a further back generation, an older generation of people that he's definitely on a short list for me as well. Um, I've got two golf stories to share with you. Okay. One is to tie into what Clay said about going on planes with rich people. When I was at LA Country Club. I talked to... Uh, Goff to Bob Hope, Dean Martin, Johnny Mathis, Neil Diamond, Fred McMurray. You're not old enough to know who those people are. Clayton would know. I'm old enough. <laughs> and, one of, and one of my students was a man named Dean Johnson. His wife was Ann Johnson, who used to be Ann Ford, Henry Ford's first wife. So I'm out giving Dean a golf lesson one day, and somebody was doing something wrong, and I went over and dealt with the situation. I did a horrible job. I, I know this now, but when I walked back over to Dean, Dean said, you know, Scott, I really liked the way that you stayed calm. You kept your voice down. You just dealt with the facts. I didn't do any of that. That was his way. Like Clayton says, if you just sit there and be quiet around smart people, you're going to pick up some stuff all over the way. So you learn from osmosis. Golf story, Byron Nelson. I only had the privilege to play with Byron one time, and it was after uh, Jay Marsh had redesigned the Lost Kingdom Sports Club. And I shot it. So the course is only like eight months old. And I shot what was a course record at the time. 66 was the course record. The tour players came two months later and lowered it to 63. But anyway, we're playing golf. I had my, I had the round of golf. Um, I came in to sit down and have lunch with Byron. If you can see me on the screen, I'm sitting where my right hand is and Byron's sitting where I am. And when I said that, when Byron sat down, I was already waiting for him to come sit down and praise my round of golf. I had 18 greens and regulations. He picks up a menu and he's looking at the menu. He's not making eye contact with me. The waiter's to the left. He says, Scott, looking at his menu, if you shorten your swing and strengthen your grip, you could be a good player. I'll have a club sandwich and a glass of tea. And he never said a word about my round of golf. So next year, Ken Venturi was at the club during the filming of the Byron Nelson Classic. I had lunch with Ken, and I told him what happened. And Ken said, Scott, and he, like 25, 30 years ago at Harding Park in San Francisco, Ken Venturi said, I shot 64, which is a course record, playing with Byron, my first round of golf. Same thing. He gave me two things to work on and no compliments. And I said, what's the moral of the story, Ken? He said, Byron told me, if I'd said something nice about your round of golf, that's all you would have remembered. He really wanted to help us, so he gave us things to correct our golf swing. And that's true. If he'd have told, if, if I could tell Clayton a story that Byron Nelson said I was a good player, I'd tell that story. I can't say that. <laughs> he didn't. Anyway. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. You know, Holly, you get around old people like Clayton and I, you're going to hear a lot of stories. <laughs> I, I, Frankly, I cannot get enough of them. That's what I loved about some of our fireside chats and and 
you know, different experiences like that. Clayton, you sat in on our model netics class that we got a lot of different stories and stuff from you. I, I eat that stuff up. I grew up with a lot of storytellers in my family as well. So I'll take them all, but well, gentlemen, that was the end of my questions that I had. Um, is there anything that you think we should dive deeper into concentrate on? Is there anything that you'd like to add? Um, in respect for your time, I know we've got nine minutes until the top of the hour, so um, I'll kind of leave it leave it open to you for for some ideas, or we can tie it off and we'll be good to go. Well, I would just uh, say, Holly, that if people would try to find something they're passionate about and make it a career, they're going to really enjoy life. I agree with Clayton 100%. The only thing I would add to that is there are a lot of talented young golf pros, men and women, out there. And if they'd swallow their pride and go to a Clayton Cole or someone like that and ask for their advice, they can elevate their, their career immediately. It's just they got to swallow their pride and take the next step. So I think the PGA Board of Directors, not to promote me or Clayton, maybe Clayton, but they should say, you should take the first step and call whoever you admire, Eddie Ainsworth or whoever it is, and say, sir, can I have, can I have an hour of your time? That's the first step to being great is, is, is listening to people that maybe have had a little bit different experience than you have. Yeah, good point. That's that's great advice. And I think, you know, for someone like me, I said at one point that I don't have a mentor, but I have a lot of people that have mentored me, you know, in the past, whether it's previous bosses that like you, Clayton, with uh, with Warren, just kind of falling into that relationship and working for the right person. And there's other people um, I just recently completed my master's degree and one of the people that I cited for my final project was an author that I just loved her book and so I ended up talking to her for probably a cumulative over two hours just picking her brain on the subject and I I would probably consider her maybe a little bit of a mentor in that subject matter which was really cool but she probably has no idea kind of like the young person that came to you Clayton so that's really well, neat. That's exactly right. We end up having mentors that we don't formalize, but we sure get some really good thoughts. Definitely. One thing I'd like to add is I've known Clayton for 37 years, Dallas Country Club days. And what's really important about a mentor is how they comport themselves off the job. And Clayton is like Byron Nelson. He's had that same polished, not polished meaning slick, polished meaning great integrity and character his whole life and you see it off the job and i think that's very important when you're picking a mentor it's not just find someone who has a good job but somebody who's a good person agreed when you when both of you touched on knowledge respect integrity and willingness to help looking for a role model i think all of those are both on and off the job scott that's a great point well gentlemen um i think We've had a, a really great conversation around mentoring. So um, Scott Irwin, Clayton Cole, thank you both for joining us for this episode of the Elevation Podcast centered around mentorship. Thank you, Holly. Holly, you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you.